TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only twenty-five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile, get four iPhone 15s on us, and four lines for twenty-five bucks per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. And welcome back to Overnight America. We're going to talk education. It's on a lot of people's minds in a book that just came out a little less than a month ago at the end of October called Blind Spots, Why Students Fail in the Science That Can Save Them. This is a very interesting book. I know we're still talking a lot about kids in schools. Look at New York. That's all they're talking about right now because now they're all going to go back to virtual and a lot of parents are upset. Dr. Kimberly Behrens joins us. Welcome to Overnight America. Hi there. Thanks for having me. What a time to write a book about education when it's the back and forth. Some areas are in, some are not. Some are virtual, some are partially in session. It's it's just a mess. Right. But the, the thing with the education system, bearing all of the different things that could go up in the air at any given moment, but in general, I'm kind of curious why you think our education system is failing right now. Right. Well, you know, that's a million-dollar question, and why I wrote a book, um, you know, I will say I wrote my book before COVID hit, and then when the pandemic occurred, you know, we really rushed to actually release the book earlier than we had intended um, because it's so highly relevant to what we're facing right now. So, you know, what I will say is our educational system wasn't working very well before the pandemic happened in the first place. Um, you know, our, we've been struggling as a nation you know, with respect to academic achievement for decades. Um, I mean, you know, really since the dawn of public education in America. So an already taxed system is now facing, you know, you know, greater challenges. And, and now more than ever, you know, the public, which is why I wrote the book, the public, you know, educators and parents, and policymakers really need to understand that one of the reasons education doesn't work in America is because it's never been guided based on the science of how the of how human learning actually works, and that's uh, that's a, a tragedy. So, so the book is really about how there is a science to human learning. It's called behavioral science, which is what my PhD is in, and teachers should be trained in this, and schools should be designed according to it. Well, isn't there normally a couple of different teachers that are specialized in that, but they're just like one resource the school has? It's not every teacher has that sort of background. Right. So, yeah, behavior behavioral science is, is highly, um, you know, applied to children with special needs. Often, you know, you know, it's interesting how kids who have some significant learning challenges that's the area of education where we've been able to make an impact because, you know, those kids need environments that are so highly special. Mm -hmm. 
people maybe in a school. Mm-hmm. Mm. Behavioral problems. So it's not implemented on, at a, on a large scale instead of how everything being educated. And that's, again, that's, it's unfortunate that that's not happening. Yeah, and unfortunately, the the phone cut out a couple of times there, so it was like right at those oh, so very key points. You know, it's funny because your book is called Blind Spots, and it felt like we had a couple of them there. <laughs> I thought, whoa, that actually fits in pretty well. But no, that's okay. I think I got the gist of of what you were saying there, and I, hopefully, hopefully, um, it's not something that will linger. I think it'll be all right because it kind of cut back in towards the end, and I, okay, I think good. we got it. But yeah, each school handles things a little bit different. And what we notice is that sometimes parents could find themselves very frustrated with schools. And a lot of times maybe parents don't really know what their involvement with kids should be. So how how much of understanding the education system and adapting to it really starts with the parents to make sure they're doing the right things? Right. Well, you know, I always say parents aren't teachers. You know, even if parents are trained as teachers, you know, that's really not a parent's role. So, you know, I didn't write this book for for parents to know how to teach their children better, but I I did write this book so that parents can have the understanding about what effective education looks like and involves, so then they can be better advocates for their own children and the type of education they're receiving. So, you know, one of the most important things is for parents to understand that children learn by behaving and having that behavior reinforced. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, now that especially there's so much online virtual instruction happening, Parents have the chance to watch their kids in online classes and really get an understanding of how often their children are being given the opportunity to participate, to answer questions and get feedback. And if your child is sitting there and staring most of the time, I promise you they're not learning. And so it's really, a, you know, a parent can then advocate to the teacher about, you know, can you provide more, more opportunities for my child to participate? Can you use more group, you know, responding um, practices rather than hand raising? You know, there's things that parents can do to advocate for their children to be more engaged in lessons, and, and that's important. But, but it's really more them advocating for how the teachers should do, should, you know, what teachers should do better. And that's okay. I mean, we all benefit from feedback. You know, requesting that a teacher does something differently or better doesn't mean you're attacking a teacher. It means you're just, you know, working as a team to make sure that things are working as well as they can for your own child. Hmm, Interesting. I um, wonder the way that virtual has changed some of these things, because I've heard stories about how kids normally, when they're sitting inside of a classroom, have been great students, A students, and then they go home and they're bored as all get up because they're in front of a screen and it doesn't move at a pace they like. And there's always the, okay, so-and-so has got to turn the microphone off. Oh, we got to do that. So there's so many other distractions right. and they're around. And then all of a sudden they go from A students to, in some cases, failing because some of the, right. they're just not stimulated enough. So I'm hoping that this isn't a trend in the long term because I think a lot of kids will really miss out on what they need in their education. But I'm curious how you think this works when a lot of these schools have just gone virtual. Yeah, well, again, like I was saying, I mean, well, first of all, you know, virtual instruction doesn't necessarily, it doesn't mean it has to be ineffective. I mean, I, I wrote, I, you know, my, the, book, the book I just wrote is really based on my 20-year career where I provide academic acceleration to kids uh, in my organization, Fit Learning. And we've been providing virtual instruction to kids who couldn't access a physical location since 2014. So and we're unbelievably effective in that department. I mean, we move kids a, a year in 40 hours of training. So, so just because it's virtual doesn't mean it has to be ineffective. Again, if yeah. you understand 
how to design instruction in a way that's producing ongoing participation, lots of reinforcement and lots of opportunities to engage. So that's, that's one thing I will say is that, again, teachers need to have some training on how to do that even better in, in a virtual setting so that you, because kids are more likely to be distracted and they do have more access to phones and things in their rooms that are going to take their attention away from class. So, so you have to be even more dazzling than ever in a virtual class. But then there's the other part, which is kids who can't access the internet, kids who can't access a, a device. And, and those are policy issues that really have to be addressed. I mean, you know, New York city, I'm in New York. And, and the, the closure that just occurred again, you know, that's a tragedy for low-income kids. Um, not only is it a tragedy for their parents who can't afford childcare, and, you know, it's a tragedy for kids who can't, af- can't actually access virtual classes. So, you know, there's, there's two facets to this. It's the teaching practices and then the access that has to be provided by policymakers with respect to kids being able to, to receive an education in, 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 the era, you know, in the age of COVID. Um, mm. So those are two big challenges. Do you mind holding on after the break? We can talk a little bit more about our system and kids and what should be done. So Blind Spots is the book that's out now, just a couple of weeks ago. And Why Students Fail in the Science That Can Save Them. It's Dr. Barron's first book. And by the way, if people wanted to find this book, what's the best place for them to look? Yeah, if you visit my website, um, drkimberlybarrons.com. Perfect. We'll continue next on KMOX. Radio's BS Detector. Mark Reardon. Weekday afternoons at 2 on St. Louis's News Radio. KMOX. In Overnight America continues. And Dr. Kimberly Barons joins us. The book is Blind Spots Why Students Fail and the Science That Can Save Them. Dr. Barons, again, thank you for joining us tonight on Overnight America. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks so much. I wanted to talk a little bit about school funding and how you think that plays into the picture, because there's some districts that have a lot of funding for schools and things go really great. And then there's other districts that just don't have that. And you can tell their schools struggle. They look at the ratings, a lot of states and nationwide, they'll do these things. Where does your school rank? And we do it here in Missouri and you check these things out and there's really rich areas, of course, have the good schools. And then there's poor areas that have terrible schools and they rate them and grade them accordingly. So how does funding play into all of this when it comes to blind spots? Right. Well, you know, when I, and I make this point in my book that there's really two, two you know, significant issues, you know, facing our nation edu- in, with respect to education. You know, the, the, the funding issue is what I like to call a top-down issue. So top-down issues being more policy-level issues. So how schools are funded, um, you know, administrative oversight, um, you know, th- those kinds of issues that are, that are really at the, the systems level. And then there's bottom-up issues, which are, the, are at, the issue, at the level of teaching practice. And, and that's my expertise. So, so my expertise is in, is in teaching. So it's in how to design instruction and how to make instruction profoundly effective and, and dramatically accelerate academic achievement. So mm-hmm. there, you know, those are two kind of separate issues. Now, and the point I make in my book is, look, schools need to be funded properly so that teachers are properly paid, that there's enough resources, that we have enough teachers in the classroom. And those are policy issues that, that must be addressed. And, and that is, and I'm not a policy you know, expert, that's really not my expertise, but I will say, you know, the fact that schools are funded by property taxes most, more often than not, you know, that's always been historically a problem because that's, that's the source of the inequity, right? Like, the, you know, when you have lower, poorer communities, you know, that pay, that have less money available for, for, you know, and they pay less in taxes, so there's less money available for schools, that's naturally going to create an inequity. 
And even in, you know, more in richer in, in, in richer communities, they even have, you know, not only do they have higher property taxes, but they also have a lot more money to fund themselves. So they have, you know, I mean, some of these PTAs have unbelievably huge amounts of money that they use to supplement schools. So, so funding inequities in education are, are clear and obvious and tragic. I mean, there's, you know, I, I did a lot of research, you know, on different school districts for my book and, you know, particularly one I looked at in Eastern St. Louis, which is really devastating. I mean, you know, regularly kids can't go to school because there's raw sewage flowing through the, the lunchroom because they can't pay to get the pipes fixed and they regularly burst. And kids can't, cannot use the lunchroom because there's been so much, you know, hazardous waste in there that they've had to shut that down. So they can't even eat in the lunchroom when they, when the schools open, you know, things of that sort are tragic. And in, in the United States, that's, that's embarrassing. I mean, we, in, in our country, that should not be happening. So schools need to be properly funded and policymakers need to figure out how to make that more equitable. Um, but that's really a policy issue. But what I will say is effective instruction isn't expensive. I mean, I will be quite honest with you about that. Like everyone thinks that the way to solve our educational crisis is more money. Well, that solves a, a, a major crisis about schools being, being pleasant places to be and safe and properly heated and proper plumbing and proper textbooks. But that doesn't solve the problem of if teaching isn't working well and if kids aren't being provided with the kind of instruction that produces proficiency. You know, and, and so I, in my book, I do talk about how there's this misunderstanding that high-ranked schools – are ranked that way because the teaching practices are better, and that's actually not true. You know, higher-ranked schools are ranked higher because parents in those communities supplement their children's education outside the school environment. There's a lot of tutoring, there's a lot of test preparation, and there's a lot of enrichment that goes on in those households. So to be quite honest, low-income schools are almost the, the, the most, you know, clear measure of, of what outcomes our educational system produces, because more often than not, the, the education those kids receive even school is really the only education they're getting because they don't come from families that can afford extra supplementation and they usually have you know parents who work a lot and can't necessarily enrich their children's environment in the same way so so, so that's what I want to also kind of debunk that myth is the idea that oh if we just fund the schools more everything will be solved no like if we fund schools better then kids will have humane conditions to go to school in and school will be a more pleasant place to be and school kids will be less likely not to want to go because their schools is such an unpleasant place like that that's a humanity problem but teaching practices aren't going to be improved by just throwing money at it. You know, that requires us understanding what's wrong with, with the way teaching's going in the first place. And, and that has to do with how, how humans learn as a scientific process is not incorporated in schools. And, mm. and that is a fundamental problem. So those are really kind of two separate issues, I would say. Well, let's look at what a lot of the schools had to offer to students were these iPads, because that was right. what they needed to do in order to help them learn from home. They're forcing the kids to right. learn from home, so they had to give them at least the equipment or the ability to do that. Yes. So let's say a lot of the students that would normally have no access to things like this all of a sudden have access to it. So that's an right. educational tool that they could use to right. try to, um, to make up for what you were talking about, the resources that the parents might not be able to do on their own. So right. all of a sudden that tool is available and that could Good. help certain things. So uh, that's that interesting would. the way you bring that up. Um, yeah. Yes, yes. 
Yeah. Oh, sorry, uh, one, another thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, going back a few years, when you outside of the funding, the curriculum and things, right. uh, the big controversy yes. we had was Common Core. So that was yeah. a thing, what, 5, 10, 15, uh, maybe 10, less than 10 years ago, whatever it was. Um, but Common Core was this nat- uh, national curriculum, and a lot of people didn't like it. And I lived in Indiana at the time that became popular, and the big thing was, hey, you know, the states know how better to educate each individual student, if they want to reject this type of thing, it would be better for to at least give the states opportunities to do such a thing. So I'm curious what you think when it comes to the the uh, curriculum. Is it good to have a national thing like a Common Core, or is it better for each district to decide on their own, do their own things if they don't like what they're seeing? Right. So again, I feel, you know, every one of my answers is, uh, is complicated. So one, just on the, on the notion of just curriculum, let's, let's, let's deal with curriculum first, and then let's talk about national standards. So curriculum, you know, one of the problems with, and this is something that's been done ever since the dawn of public education, is that every 10 years or so, you know, the educational establishment overhauls and, 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 and does a whole other curriculum to try to solve the problem. Because again, as I, I'm telling you, and this is in my book, never once, never has the United States produced a majority of students at the proficient level in math, reading, and science. It's never been accomplished. And, and those data you can find on the National Assessment of Educational Progress, of Academic Progress website. Those, those data are clear, and they're also in my book. So, so this has been, you know, the, the educational establishment has been scrambling to try to fo- solve this problem for a long time. And the problem with curriculum is that curriculum and instruction are two different things. So I always talk about curriculum is what to teach and instruction is how to teach it. And so you're not going to, you're not going to improve learning outcomes if you overhaul curriculum over and over and over again without improving the instructional practices used to teach that curriculum. I mean, I always tell people, like, I can teach a kid to, effect, to proficiently read with a pencil and a piece of paper. Like, if you understand... Uh, an academic skill set, a repertoire of skills, and, and you understand what instruction entails. And when I, mean, when I talk about the how like, versus the what, I mean instruction is how curriculum, how, you know, curriculum is, or skill sets are broken down into component skills, like the fundamentals, how, they are, um, how those fundamentals are then instructed, how, how, you know, how those things are presented to the class, how prompts are delivered so that correct responses are secured, how reinforcement is delivered so that those responses are strengthened, how learning is measured, and how mastery is determined. That is instruction. Curriculum is what you're supposed to be teaching, so like phonics or math facts or whatever it might be. But those are two separate things. And the problem is just, you know, one more curriculum, you know, one more textbook, one more new curriculum, you know, line, it's never worked. And I promise you it never has. And it, the data are clear on this. These overhauls, you know, they, over, they, they did everyday mathematics, and then that was a disaster. And then they came in with Common Core, and that's been a disaster. It's always been a disaster. It's a disaster because curriculum don't teach kids. You know, teachers do. And teachers teach kids using effective instruction, you know, from, that's, that's paramount. So, so that's, that's the curriculum problem. Now, with respect to national standards, when we're talking about a national curriculum, I absolutely think that that, and here's the other thing, unfortunately, like so many other things in our society, education has become politicized. And now we're seeing, you know, medicine and science become politicized because of COVID and healthcare become politicized. And that's very, very dangerous because you never want politicians dictating how doctors treat their patients. 
because doctors are the experts and their practices are based on best practice guidelines that have been determined by science. And that's never occurred in education where there is a standard of educational practice that is a national standard that guides how teachers teach in classrooms, but it's teachers who are in charge of that because they're the experts. So the problem is when Nash, you know, this all becomes politicized because it becomes about being a Democrat or a Republican. It becomes about being small government or big government because it becomes about, oh, you know, the, the federal government shouldn't dictate how, what curriculum I use in my classroom. But, but the, the, the thing is, it, there should be a national standard of best practices in education, and it should be guided by science based on what produces the most effective outcomes with kids. And that isn't what happens. And so this is why this is a debate, which is a ridiculous debate, because it, it, we should all be unified as a nation under the common value of we want our children to be effectively educated, because when our kids are effectively educated, we all do better. We all do better. Like We're facing a pandemic. We need highly educated people who can solve these kinds of problems that we are facing, and we are going to be facing great, you know, in, in greater, to greater and greater degree you know, in the next decade, in two decades and three decades. We have climate change. We have you know, all these diseases. We have, there's so many things that require highly educated people to solve these problems. So we should all be unified as a country, not as a political party, but as a country about, we want education to be about what works. And the only way to determine what works is by doing science. And that, has been, that is very clear. If history has taught us anything, it has taught us that. So, so you know, when we talk about a national curriculum, I, there are, there is a, you know, we have done, my, in my own organization, you know, more than 20 years of applied science on what are the essential skills kids must master in reading, mathematics, critical thinking, and writing to be able to, to successfully acquire more advanced skills with very little effort. And, and that is what a national curriculum should entail. It shouldn't be about, you know, it, it, it should be about outcomes, not these debates that you can never win because they're, always, they're all ideological arguments. And that's the problem with getting in ideological arguments because there's no solution because people cling to their belief systems and then you're spinning your wheels, which is why we've never evolved. Our educational system has never evolved and never improved. And so science is the only access point to that. That's, it allows you to settle these disputes pragmatically. So I am absolutely for a national standard of educational practice, as I am for you know, pra best practices in medicine, as I am for best practices in engineering, as I am for best practices in any, other, any of the other sciences or any, uh, you know, any of the other areas of, of human life where being effective really matters. It shouldn't be about politics. It shouldn't be about belief or ideology. It should be about evidence. Um, and hmm. that's, that's the real issue that we're all facing because our educational system is an ideological institution, not a pragmatic one. All right. Well, I want to make sure people could <laughs> find your book called yes. Blind Spots, Why Students Fail in the yes. Science That Can Save Them. What's the best website for them to go to? Yes, if you go to drkimberlybarons.com, you will find all the information, you know, all, all stuff about me, and, every, and I've written a bunch of other things that are, that are on there, and, so, and then you can, you know, links to the book are on there as well. So. Perfect. Blind yeah. spots people can find online. Dr. Kimberly Barons, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Overnight America. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And she joins us on the Quiver River Electric Guest Line. I know there's a lot of parents probably uh, frustrated with what's going on in schools today, and it's nice to hear 
that we can maybe use this as an opportunity to stop, collaborate, and listen, like one of the great philosophers said in our time. This is Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. News Radio 1120 KMOX. The voice of the Cardinals. In Overnight America is live tonight up until midnight. Unless you're listening to this on the replay hour, which is fine. You can get the podcast by going to Overnight America anywhere you get your podcast or KMOX.com in the podcast section or the radio.com app, things like that. So I wanted to um, bring this up real quick because I know Thanksgiving is next week. I have some time off for Thanksgiving, and I've heard from two different people, one a listener of the show and my neighbor who told me the exact same thing. And I'm starting to prepare for Thanksgiving at our house this year. We have some family that's going to be visiting us. So when they get in, I want to impress them. But more or less, I want to impress my belly. I want it to taste good. I want it to be something that I remember. And this is what they're telling me. So the way that we would normally prepare a turkey is the traditional way. You get one of those big oval pans with the you know, the, the, the top on it. And I've done it multiple ways. I've done it where you continue, continuously baste it, and then you, you get some sort of rub you can put on it, things like that. You, you tend to the turkey while it's cooking. Okay, that's one way. Another way I've done it is you put it into a bag. I bought turkey bags before where, you know, it kind of helps with keeping it nice and moist. That is cool, too. Now, everyone tells me that you need to use brine. You need to brine your turkey. And they say, oh, it makes the biggest difference on this thing. So I said, okay, how do you how do you brine a turkey? So, so this is how my neighbor tells me to do it. And if you have any experience doing this, and you've tried it both ways, and you say, oh, no, you absolutely have to brine the turkey to cook it, call me, because I got questions for you. 314-436-7900 or 800-925-1120. Apparently, grocery stores, by the way, are just overstocked with turkeys because now that they um, are telling you, oh, don't get families together for Thanksgiving this year, and people are afraid to go out, that now they're worried they're not going to sell all the turkeys out. Normally, they order what they think they need, and now they're under uh, performing when it comes to sales of turkey. So there's a concern there. So who knows? Maybe you'll be able to get a, a Thanksgiving turkey, and then you'll buy a cheap one to keep in the freezer for Christmas. Why not do a Christmas turkey? So this is how I understand you brine a turkey, and this is how my neighbor told me about it. He said, okay, you get like one of those Home Depot buckets. You go to like Menards or Home Depot, one of those places, and you just get a bucket, you clean it out, and then you put your turkey in there. You fill it with water in ice, and you mix in all of the different 
herbs and spices that you want to use with it. You put a lot of salt in there. You want, you got special things, you know, herbs, whatever. You find the different combinations, and you can look online for different ways to do this. Mix it all together so you got this solution. You just put the turkey right into it, thawed, of course, the night before Thanksgiving. So you want to start working on this thing. You said like 4 o'clock-ish the night before. So, because it takes sometimes two hours to do this, you want to boil the water with the herbs and the salt and all this stuff so the solution really gets diluted well. And then you have to wait for it to cool because you can't put it in hot. And then once it cools down after a couple of hours, get all that stuff in there. And then he says, you add the ice and then you have to put it in your fridge. So, this is where my wife said, Hold up, y'all. You want me to clear off an entire shelf of the fridge during Thanksgiving? where shelf life is already at the, I mean, max capacity. I don't think so. This thing can't be good enough to take up an entire shelf to make up for the fact that it, it tastes good in the back end. And I said, no, honey, this is what they all say. This is what you need to do. So you get the bucket in there. And it doesn't have to be like a full-size giant bucket. It just has to be enough to maybe have a gallon of water and ice and all this other stuff. So just enough so it's submerged in this thing. So let's say you start this process at about 4 o'clock. By 6 o'clock, you got this thing in the fridge. You leave it in there until the next day, and then you start cooking the turkey like you normally would. For the most part, it's in there about, I don't know, 15 hours or something. And he says, this makes the world of difference on Thanksgiving. If you can brine the turkey properly... He said, you'll never go back. There's people that deep fry it. Forget the deep frying. You'll never need to look at a turkey deep fryer when you got the brine. The ways that you just shove it in the oven and maybe put butter underneath the skin or, you know, spice it that way, make it all. No, he said, forget about it. Don't do it. Don't do the bag. You got to brine. So with Thanksgiving around the corner, I'm wondering if you have any recommendations for me. And I need you to tell me from your own experience if brining is the way to go and how do I convince my wife to let me do it because now I have to, it's a pretty hard sell to have to tell her we need to give up a shelf in the fridge in order to do this. We don't have a spare fridge. We don't have the ability to just, oh, we got a basement fridge or something like that so it's easy for storage. No, we're one full shelf, whew, that's a hard sell, you know? I, I might be able to Tetris the stuff in there, but then again, if we're packing that thing full to the brim in that fridge, that's that's another hard one to do too. Then you can't prepare much of the other stuff ahead of time. 314-436-7900 or 800-925-1120. And please don't call in and tell me to stuff the turkey full of popcorn before I put it inside of there because, yes, I already know that Jim White turkey story. And no, I haven't been able to find any audio clip of it. I wish that existed. I'm sure someone listening may have the Jim White turkey story saved somewhere. It's just I've never heard it before, and I haven't heard anyone come forward and say they have it saved. I just would like to hear it for myself. But no, we won't be putting any uncooked popcorn kernels right up in the turkey. Now, some people say they've cooked small turkeys, kind of like you would chickens, where you put like um, a can of whatever. You know, the ones where the, you, the, the cook with the can up the rear of the chicken and you put it on the barbecue grill or the oven or whatever, and then whatever liquid you have inside of that can, you could do water, it could be other beverages, whatever. It helps keep the turkey or the small turkey, I should say, or the chicken very moist. Some people say they do something similar to that with a full-size turkey. Apparently, you can buy giant 
metal frames for these things. And then you can put a giant can of something up there in order to help keep the thing moist. And some people say that's the way you do it, like you would a small chicken. I don't know if I agree with that either. Uh, That's another hard sell. Either way, it's going to be an interesting Thanksgiving in the Wrecker household this year. I just looking to impress. This is Overnight America KMOX. Now back to Overnight America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. I love how producer Mike says, all you need to do is talk about food. That's all you need to get the guys to call in. And isn't that true? So let's talk about turkeys and brining. Could use your advice on it. And Randall is holding on. Welcome to Overnight America. Hey, Ryan. You're making this way too hard. Uh, (laughs) I work for a major company. Then all I've been doing is selling stuff on how to cook. I'll just say my turkey is beyond good. You can figure out the other two words in our name. This is how easy it is, and you don't have to tie up any refrigerator. Go buy a, a box of brining mix. It's uh-huh. too complicated to try to put it together in a brining bag. Go out, grab your cooler, rinse it out really good. Put your turkey and some water in the brining bag. Put a half a bag of ice on top of it. Now take a pan, fill about half full of water, so about a quart. All you have to do is dissolve the salt. You don't have to boil it. That just adds a lot of time. Pour about a half a bag of ice into the brining mix. That's going to bring the temperature right, right down. Pour that in your brine bag, seal the bag, put the rest of your ice on top of your, uh, in your cooler, on top of your bird, let it set till the next morning. Next mm-hmm. morning, rinse it off, dry it off. And if you want to look like that uh, turkey that everybody dreams of, just sprinkle it with paprika, cover it with aluminum foil, cook it 15 minutes a pound. If you cook that sucker 15 hours, it doesn't matter what you're going to do, you're going to run it. Last yeah. 30 minutes kick it up to 400 degrees, take off the aluminum foil, and you're going to be a hero. Wow. So you're oh, saying that just use easy. a cooler. Yeah, that does sound pretty take, easy. Take well, the cooler, cooking side of things. Take but a cooler, the, and then you don't yeah. have to type the refrigerator. I might have to do that. That's actually a really good solution. Yeah. But the, the cooking take side I wasn't too concerned cool, with. Yeah. But it was the, the tying it up, because they say that you have to put this in the night before, so you want to get it in there brined for many hours to really get the full effect yeah. of it. The best, the best way to brine is you want it between 6 and 10 hours. So I, I do, like, exactly. I started the night before. I get up the next morning. And all the stuff they want you to put into it, basically what brining is, whether it's any, any kind of meat, it's the salt, and it's usually a sea salt, and it opens up the pores. The water goes in. It forces the salt back out, and you've just pumped your bird full of juice, and that's why it's so juicy. That sounds excellent. Well, maybe that's an easier sell. We'll just have to keep bags of ice in the freezer um, from our ice machine and then prepare that because I don't feel like going out and buying it. So that's perfect. You know, I'm cheap Randall. So that's the way we'll do it. All right. Great tip. All right. Put get the bag right, and get night. it going. Have a good night. Thank you. 314-436-7900. Wow. That was actually a great solution to it. Uh, let's go to Raymond calling in. Welcome to overnight America. Hey Ryan, how you doing? Good. Hey, uh, that guy had a lot more detail than I would uh, uh, provide to you, but uh, that cooler idea, uh, 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 look up uh, Alton Brown's method of brining a turkey and cooking it. So the first point, yeah, use a cooler and, and do it that way so you don't take up freezer space or fridge space. But my second point, and it's also part of the Alton Brown method, is get some sort of remote thermometer uh, or the one that, got a wire that goes into the turkey and then like a prong into the turkey 
So that way you're not having to open that oven door and keep on basting it because if you open up that oven door, uh, a lot of heat comes out every time you baste, and that kind of may lead to uneven cooking. So that way you can just monitor the internal temperature. And I don't, I mean, I always have to look that up, but, you know, that way you can make sure your, your turkeys are not all dry and overcooked. That's interesting. So tell me about this device. Is it electronic? Yeah, yeah. You can get it at Target or any of these stores. It's it's just a it's a it's basically a a, a thermometer and you know they're they're remote ones without a wire, but it, the ones with a wire are a dime a dozen. But if there's this prong that you, you put into the chicken or the turkey breast, and then as it's cooking, you can obviously set the alarm for you know whatever the internal temperature is. And again, I I don't know what off the top of my head. But, uh, yeah, they're really pretty easy to come by. They're not too expensive, 10 20 bucks. So, huh, But, yeah, I would highly recommend using that method so that way you don't overcook the, the turkey. Wow, that's a great point, Raymond. Okay, I'll look for those. You said 20 bucks at most for one of these bad boys? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're not expensive at all. Okay, well, cool. Hey, thanks, Raymond. Appreciate that. This is much better than the eyeball method, which I normally would do. I just, I'll eyeball it. I got a pretty good idea. My internal clock would tell me to do this at this time, which is always a disaster because I always screw it up that way. Let's go to Dwayne. Welcome to Overnight America. Uh, yes, sir, Ryan. Thank you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the same idea as the last two people. Uh, they went into a little bit more detail, so uh, you know what I was thinking then. You were doing that too? Have you done it yourself? No, I haven't. Uh, I've put a lot of things in my coolers that uh, yeah. when we've had company at, and this kind Using of the stuff. Cooler. You know, yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I um, think that space is always going to be the biggest issue. How do you normally cook a turkey on Thanksgiving? Uh, I don't know. I, uh, I've helped with them, but I've never did them myself. Mm-hmm. I get that. See, I'm normally the one that doesn't even help. I'm normally in the other room. I'm just normally the consumer of the food. So this kind of changes things up. And I'm not opposed to just buying like a honey-baked ham, turkey, already pre-sliced stuff. That doesn't bother me. But I need to do the full experience because the family's coming over this time around. I feel like it is my obligation to do the best I can. And that's when brining comes in. So now with the the burden on my back, I got to make sure I do it right. I want them to know that uh, I could play in the big leagues when it comes to cooking. Uh, well, I, yeah. Uh, I would do <laughs> yeah. it like the first two gentlemen said. But I like cooking them in like the bag myself. Yeah, the bag I've done um, just for other things. Like I've I've cooked things in bags in the stove before, and that's come out pretty good, unless the bag sticks or whatever. And then you're like, eh. all right, Dwayne, thank you very much for your call. And I love when we can talk turkey. I love talking food. And Thanksgiving is about a week away. I mean, after by this time next week, I'll either have a turkey and brine sitting in my garage, nice and cool, or I won't, and I'll be regretting my. Uh, procrastination to hold it off even further and then I'll be looking at other ways to do it I got the I mean I've already bought the bird it's in my I got a freezer chest in the basement here it's a 14 and a half pound bird I tried to buy the smallest one I could find normally you know I went to Aldi they got like these 20 pound butterball turkeys they're like 89 cents a pound it's they're so cheap right now I considered buying a big one but thought no I need something more manageable 
So I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving this year. It's Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. T Mobile.com.